your customer-centric culture is largely related to your workplace culture. So actually, if you were looking at a culture that was quite toxic and that was quite difficult and there was people were not aligned in terms of the business, that's very different to an organization that just isn't customer orientated, but could be a really good place to work. So if you're coming from a position where actually culture is great, but you want to be more customer centric, then you're looking at maturity levels, then I would say that the biggest, most exciting challenge would be starting from scratch. Welcome to Talk Time with Max Contact, your go-to podcast for everything contact centre related. Join us as we dive into the incredible world of contact centres and explore the latest trends, innovative strategies and cutting-edge technologies that are reshaping customer interactions. In each episode, we're joined by industry experts to share their practical insights and advice to elevate your contact centre performance. Whether you're looking to enhance operational efficiency, improve team management, or understand the impact of AI and contact centers, you're in the right place. Welcome to another episode of Talk Time with Max Contact. I'm Sean McIver, your host. In this episode, I'm talking to Leonie Williams, current co-founder and director of the Customer Service Solutions Group. Since 2006, Leonie's been there for customers of huge hotel chains, including Hilton and IHG, before expanding into many other sectors. She's here to talk about customer service culture, the importance of both employee experience and customer experience, a really important topic. Leonie, welcome. Did I cover things off there okay? How would you introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Sean. The only things I would probably add are that before we set up with my business partner, Rebecca Holiday's Customer Service Solutions, we both spent nearly eight years at the Institute of Customer Service, where we worked with remarkable organizations that all wanted to improve their customer service and customer experience, which gave us a wealth of knowledge that we then wanted to practically apply, which was then when we set up Customer Service Solutions. And we think that we have brought some brilliant tools to enable us to do that. So that's what we're doing now. Amazing. And we'll come on to some of those tools in a little bit, I hope, because I was reading in my preparation for this conversation, I was reading, I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I'm looking forward to unpacking that with you. Before we do that, I want to just rewind just slightly and just unpack your CV, if you like, not quite CV, but I just want to unpack your background because the more I read into it, the more I read back, actually, you know, you've been involved with customer experience for 20 odd years and you've had quite critical roles at a number of businesses. I guess my my first question to you is, is maybe quite a specific question, but I think it's really interesting. You worked in Melbourne for just over a year with Intercontinental Hotels and through the lens of customer experience and through kind of that lens that we're talking about today, what did you learn from your time abroad in a different culture or the commonalities are there key differences that that you kind of took forward with you really interesting question actually I guess going back through the CV yes you're right 20 years seems like a long time now but I started working in all sorts of different customer facing roles I even worked in an Indian restaurant back in the day and it was so much fun and then yeah I got the opportunity to work in Melbourne and what I was thinking was that it was going to be culturally very different but actually I worked for such an amazingly customer-centric organization that was so good, even with their 4,000 hotels, and you don't even want to know how many employees that is, about standardizing the employee experience and the customer experience across all of their, all of the different, um, small, you know, small business units. It was just remarkable how you felt that you were, had just moved from 
Heathrow, where I used to work, into Melbourne, it's, it was a really, really smooth transition and everybody was kind of still IHD'd. So culturally, yes, externally to the hotel, it was all very different. And um, I loved living in Melbourne. But actually as a business, in terms of the way that practice, it was just very, very similar to what I expected, you know, what you would have expected in the UK, which made it such an amazing company to work for culturally. That's incredible. And it must be incredibly difficult for a company of that size to establish and sustain and have continuity of that culture. It's an interesting one, actually. And I think I was really spoiled by potentially working for two of the biggest hotel chains in the world and that were two of the biggest customer-centric organisations in the world still now. So I worked for Hilton and then I worked for IHG. And I think all of those best practices that I learned along the way were just not even any effort for those businesses. It just felt it was the way that they did it. And actually, when I came out and worked... Then I moved forward to working with the Institute of Customer Service. I was then working with all these businesses that just didn't get it in the same way as I thought all businesses got it. So I was very privileged, actually, to work for some businesses that had just, like I said before, standardized so many habits and rituals within the workforce. I don't think even at that time they had customer experience teams. I think that everybody was just so in tuned with their role, how important the customer was, what the overall purpose of their role in the organization was. I think that people just got it. And I still think that hospitality is a potentially a major outlier in that even now. Was it jarring then when you left that particular industry, when you left that particular role and you went to work with other companies who perhaps didn't have that culture to the same extent? How did you go about kind of starting out and not being immediately running screaming? I think over the time that I worked at the Institute of Customer Service, I just got enveloped into so many amazing businesses that some of them were small, regional, some weren't really big. All of them at different stages of the journey and different maturity levels. And I just got enveloped into their businesses. It's almost like an external consultant, if you like, or even something more important as part of their team. And they shared so many things around some of them were great culturally and some of them were quite far behind but I think that they were just all there for the same reason which was to improve and I think that when you are listening to people that maybe are not there yet but still have this desire to move forward it doesn't really matter where they are because you feel that you can potentially help them more the further they are to go it's actually quite easy to move scores and mechanisms of whatever they're utilizing it's quite low base and actually there's very you know there's tactical things that you can do quite easily to move it's actually becomes quite difficult to actually make a difference to those organizations that have already got really really high levels of culture which are already in a really really good place so coming from an outsider and wanting to help it's actually it was a really good challenge rather than it being jarring as you say to be able to support these businesses and I went away having helped and having um, you know witnessed so many incredible transformations it was incredible. The key question here then is You've talked about IHG and Hilton and them being incredibly customer-centric and, and the customer experience being front and centre and then speaking to other companies who are on that aspirational journey. In your view, what does it mean to be a true leader in that field of customer experience, customer satisfaction? What are the traits of those companies you view as being at the forefront on that innovation? 
So I think that when it comes to leaders in truly customer-centric companies, that is where it all starts with leadership. And I think it is all really about tone from the top and leading by example and, you know, measuring the things that matter. So rather than being operationally and financially focused, making sure that you've got equal importance on customer measures and also making sure that there's room at the board table for somebody that is truly accountable for the customer and making sure on a practical level that you are out in front and center with your customers and that your staff and your employees can see that you're doing that. So I had a really, really great example of a CEO that turned this around within a utilities organization. And he started, it was a very, I think it was a monopoly when it first started, but it, they didn't have to look after their customers. And he came in and he switched it all around. And just one of the very simple things that he did on a daily basis was hold a complaints forum with his senior leaders. And it was, if a, if a complaint was older than three days, he was on that call. And so you, if you were accountable for that particular division, and nobody wanted to be on that. So everybody then swiftly starts sorting their complaints out. So that's just one live example, I guess, as a leader that puts themselves front and centre within the business and gets, that's where the tone from the top and the magic happens. That's incredible. Props to that particular individual for the initiative. That's fantastic. And a really good example, actually. On the flip side of that, we've got... I've certainly seen or heard of stories where companies have clear aspirations of wanting to be customer-centric operations, and yet it tends to be the first thing that falls by the wayside. There is a perception, or there's historically been a perception, that the customer experience is kind of a nice-to-have, a bit of a fluffy. How do you ground that in the real world and ensure that, as you said, you've got that seat at the board table and it's not the first thing that's forgotten about when things get tough? Yeah, and you're right. You know, I've seen it many, many times before where in times of struggle, in times of crisis, people revert back to the things that they're comfortable with, which generally isn't the customer experience. Customer experience is a tough one because actually if you do it right, then short term, you get savings, but you don't necessarily get growth. And it's difficult to get an ROI on it. But I think that what I suggest and what I do when I'm talking to leaders and I'm trying to get buy-in is talk to them in a language that they understand. So talk to them about cold, hard facts, about what it's going to cost you if you don't invest. Maybe what the financial returns could be if you do. It's slightly more difficult, but what, what is going to happen if you don't? So there was an example I worked with another organization a while ago and every complaint that they had was costing them £2,000. So when they worked out what their cost to serve every complaint was, it soon adds up. And actually, if you sorted out your complaints and your customer experience in that respect, you could probably afford to actually budget against doing some proper customer experience work. So I think it's about really, really hammering home those nuts and bolts that they understand, you know, and actually thinking about the, not necessarily just the financial implications of not getting this right, but it's also what's the impact on your start when you're having you know the same problems and you're not looking at your root cause and things like that or you're not allowing them to continuously improve it's detrimental on staff as well so you get more attrition and you get less empowerment and this so i think that it's potentially is looking at cold hard costs that makes sense and i like the way that you contextualize that through the point of the example of the complaints and the cost of that complaint putting it in those terms i think that's a really good point i guess off the back of that you talked about you worked for the hotels that you were leading customer centricity before it was a thing. 
And I think that's fair to say. The explosion of customer experience and the focus on customer centricity has only really gained traction in more recent years. It's been there for a long though, but it's only really, it's taken a while to get going. How has the culture of customer service evolved over the years? And what are companies doing now that they maybe weren't even speaking of 20 years ago? So I'd love to say that it's evolved massively since then. So when I first started working with, I guess, less customers focused or orientated or centric or whatever you want to call it, it was quite clear at the time that customer service was responsibility of, you know, that department down the hall. So I think in terms of that, I think that the perception has changed somewhat that everybody in some way, shape or form is responsible for servicing internal or external customers. I think that that is a change that I have seen. I think the need and the desire to be more self-serve orientated was a big thing, I would say, about 10 years ago. I was talking to organizations then about how do we have better conversations with our customers if we just take away some of the more less complex, more mundane stuff, and how do we start having more decent conversations? So at the time, for some organizations, it wasn't about necessarily putting in self-serve so that we could remove jobs. It was very much putting in self-serve for those low-level interaction so that then employees could have really deep and sort of meaningful conversations where the opportunity was more complex. It was definitely, that was around 10 or so years ago. And I would say that ever since the evolution of things like portals and the ability to have an app for things, those sorts of things have just evolved. And with the introduction of more tech, you take away checks and you introduce backs. And so all of those things have just been evolving over time, but it still hasn't removed the need for a human, even close to where I think people thought we were going and probably even saved even half the amount of money that people thought they were going to save. So I think that the introduction of self-serve and the, the perception of people is that they want to do things more self-serve. I think that people potentially don't, want to actually speak to humans. And I think for the most part, they want it least effort, least contact. So therefore, when they are talking to humans, they absolutely want the best interaction that they're going to potentially have. So I think the self-serve and this perception change that most people do have dealings with the customer, whether they are indirect or direct, I would say have been the biggest changes I've seen. Hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. If you're finding it valuable, we've got something special for you. Check out our latest industry report, a free resource filled with data-driven insights directly from the contact center landscape, created for contact center leaders looking to stay ahead of the curve. Find out more information via the link in this episode's resources. You're going to have to forgive me here. You've opened Pandora's box when you talked about self-serve. So I'm going to piggyback off the back of that, because what conversation is complete in 2024 without bringing up AI, chatbots, machine learning, and so on? My first question is, how, if at all, has that impacted the experience from your point of view, both for the employee and for the customer? And to dramatize it a little bit and turn it into a bit of a radio drama, are we in the end times of customer experience and culture? Like, what's the risk in terms of losing customer centricity in an age of automation? Can companies do that in a way that keeps the customer center stage? No, I love a bit of AI. I'm not based by the introduction of AI. I think that there is potential for it to be absolutely amazing if it's used correctly. And yes, we have seen an awful lot more businesses using it. 
And you know, even at an individual level, I'm a big fan of chat GPT. But I think it's about using it correctly. We all see things on the media where it's not working as well as it maybe should do. And I think we need to take into consideration that actually maybe it's not as advanced as people think it is and not necessarily always rely on it. So I saw a great example as um, a judge at the UK Customer Experience Awards, and I saw this great example of where they're utilising it to support their employees. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. So the correspondence is still going through the human, but the human gets the support by the AI to then make the answer better and faster and easier. But then the human still is enabled to make it more human if it's incorrect. And then they got a massive uplift in the customer satisfaction over their AI-supported emails than they did in human. So that was a really great example of actually where it's working really, really well. And if we could have more examples like that, then obviously we wouldn't be as shy because it's human and AI working in conjunction. Where we really support companies is with this human part of customer experience. So it's the service element, it's the culture bit. And actually, I don't think that you can eradicate humans. You could have the best chatbot in the world, but actually we still need humans to have that relationship and the empathy and the emotional intelligence that maybe the AI may be capable of one day, but still not now. I think that people talk about AI in terms of replacing people. It's probably potentially the same as self-serve. We get worried about it taking all our jobs. And yes, to a degree, it could take away simplistic jobs. It is already taking away simplistic jobs. But this is why we need to make the human interactions even better. When it comes to a complaint, you might find that that person has been serviced by AI the whole time that they've been utilising that business. But they've got a complaint. They want to speak to someone. And at that point, that is the only human interaction that a customer is probably going to have with you. And that needs to be the best it can possibly be. So actually, with all the money that we're saving, we need to upskill our people to enable them to have the best human interactions. Because those are the interactions that people will remember. They're not going to remember how great your app was or how great an interaction was with the chatbot. Really interesting that you kind of frame it in that way. And I would agree, like I'm a huge proponent of AI and the benefits that it brings. I think it has to be done in context. I was having a conversation recently and it was interesting looking at the contact center trends and it was showing, you know, that actually the volume of telephony interactions hasn't massively reduced. And it came down to one of the points raised was around trust. And if you're at the point where, for example, I don't know, your boiler's not working or your hotel's not what you expected, at that point, that's when you need to talk to a human. And that's when it's critical to have that human conversation because that can be transformative to the outcome, even if you're not resolving it. I think it was Maya Angelou who said, people won't remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And I think that's interesting. So from that slight divergence there, I want to come on to your six-step program to customer centricity. I believe that's called Measure Up. Would you be able to talk me through some of those six steps and how you went about defining them? The first of those being, quote, measuring your current customer culture using industry-leading tools. So we put these six steps together. You kind of have to think about it as almost like a figure of eight. So you go through the program and you go through your six steps, but it also leads you back to almost like redefining where you are now. And then you go through the steps again, because culture is one of those things that just takes constant fueling. 
it's not that you get to the end of the program and, you know, we're all sorted with our culture now, we can all go home. It takes constant work and constant momentum to keep it going. So we created a six-step approach so that we could help businesses to keep that momentum going. And actually, the define part, which is kind of utilizing the tool to measure where you are now, gives you an opportunity to get the employee voice. So it gives you the opportunity to ask your employees what they think about your current service provision and how customer-centric you are. And you can then benchmark against other great customer-centric organizations. But it gives you a line in the sand and it gives you an opportunity to really understand where you are right now and what you need to do to move forward strategically. Because the great part about that tool is that it also it gives you some very top-line scores against eight specific drivers, three of those being in terms, so around your collaboration, your empowerment, and your strategic alignment. And those are the key drivers that create a culture. So we utilize this tool to enable organizations to, yes, draw that line in the sand and then put some strategic priorities and actions in, but keep the narrative going with your employees throughout the whole of the steps. So the next one is around developing your plan to move forward. So that's when you encourage collaboration and you get lots of different cross-functional people together and you set your priorities so that the priorities are not coming from the top. They are actually created by the workforce. Then you start the next stage of the process, which is about engaging the wider community. It's about embedding this. Um, it's about embedding these initiatives into the rest of your organization for the long term. So supporting those rituals and habits and making sure that the wider workforce is involved in this as well. And then you get to a point where you're obviously enhancing many, many of the things that you've already got in place. And then obviously you're getting to the point where you're in sustain, which is where we teach you to utilize these tools that we've got within our toolkit to be able to run with it yourself. So we put these six steps together as almost like a framework that organizations can use so they've got points at which they know which employees they need to bring in, which they need to who they need to lean on, what a project looks like. And then we underpin that with other training, which might be things like customer journey mapping or other initiatives that they've already got in place. This isn't ever about reinventing the wheel. This is about determining what they've already got in-house in terms of great stuff in their culture and then weaving the customer into it. So it might be that they've already got great one-to-ones, but actually, are you asking about your interactions with your customers? Are you asking about those behaviors that you want to see within your values? and Sorts of things like that. So there's all sorts of things that come out of this six-step approach, but it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all. It's different to everyone, but it suits any initiative that you're going to put in place, really, or any design principles or anything that you're going to put in terms of CX or any initiatives, you can still use this six-step approach. Even if you were going to do a complaints review, you could use this six-step approach. So a couple of questions that come up off the back of that then. One of the points that you mentioned was around kind of supporting the teams and ensuring that it's prioritized and that you retain focus. What are some of the biggest things that you've seen that cause focus to be at risk of being lost within a business? To be honest, I see it and I hear it more so than I would want to admit, but it is the embedding part of any initiative or any sort of cultural transformation. Cultural transformation can take a really, really long time and lots of organisations will have a great idea and they'll put initiatives in place and they all sound all great, but then, or or even training, say, for example, they might have a training mechanism to support their initiatives and their overall strategy for this transformation. But 
the training is like a one-stop shop one day, then everyone just goes back to doing what they were doing before. So just that's just one example of how things just don't then get embedded and then people become sceptical about the change. And then you get into this cycle of things haven't been embedded. So then you go back to the beginning and then you reinvent something else and you try to embed something new and then it doesn't work again. So it's this perpetual cycle that organisations are getting themselves into where they employees then don't even invest in it because they're then sceptical about it going nowhere. So training is one example of that. Another example is where people get survey results or feedback from their customers or employees and don't do anything with it and don't even close the loop and don't even go back to their employees about even the results of what they've had or even the actions that they've taken. And it just goes into a hole of doom or whatever it is. But those are just a couple of examples of where things are just not being embedded into habits and rituals. And when I say about habits and rituals, and I think this is one of the things that I learned from working in hotels, it's just the way that they do stuff. There's no like, oh, we've introduced a new initiative over here. And it's just every day the head of departments would have a meeting where they would talk about all the customers that were going to come in specifically around the VIPs. And those VIPs, what would they all be receiving? Who was going to meet and greet them? Who was going to take them to their rooms? Who was going to... And it was just something that they did and everybody knew it was every day. It was at 10 o'clock and who was going to be there and who was responsible for it. I guess this is very similar to back to the CEO that runs that complaints call every day. It's not another initiative. It's just one of the many things that they embed within their working day or working week or working year. And it's just something that everybody knows about and does. And I think that that is where for some organizations it falls down. And I think that maybe one of the ways in which organizations can overcome some of this is not expecting the need to be taken by customer experience. So a lot of leadership teams will say, right, we want to sort our customer-centric culture out. We've got a value against it. Customer experience, they've got that name in their title. They can they can sort this out. And then believing that they can make the change from a customer experience team is the biggest problem that I see, that the leadership think that somebody else from a team somewhere can do this. And that team is great because it comes up with great initiatives, but it can't embed them like a leadership team can or at a wider level. Some really great points there. Thank you. I have a couple of follow-ups, if that's okay, based on what you've said. So embedding culture takes a long time. The risk of changing culture frequently before it's had a chance to embed and the risk of not embedding it consistently across the business is significant. Does that make companies change averse to taking up a customer-centric culture because of those risks? And how do you go about actually overcoming those? Do you know what? I think you're right to pick up on that because I think culture is quite a scary word for some people. So it's so big that oh, we won't bother with that. And I think it can be very much, if you were looking to change a culture, you could be looking for three, five, seven years, dependent on how mature you are in the first place. But I'm talking about massive workplace culture. So the bit that we focus our efforts on is this customer bit. So actually kind of referred to it earlier, which is we're not talking about reinventing your whole entire culture. We're talking about taking the amazing parts that you've already got and just weaving the customer in. And I think that when you talk about it like that to people, then actually it takes away from this massive, great, big, scary, oh my God, we've got to change everything in our culture to something a little bit more manageable. 
And I think it's about talking to people about bite-sized chunks. So looking at the short-term wins, looking at the long-term gains, like looking at it quite pragmatically, but also getting them to think about the fact that they can't eat the elephant all in one go. You've got to eat it in bite-sized chunks, right? So where we use our MRI tool and our customer-centric tool at the beginning, this gives you a really good opportunity to workshop what your actual key strategic priorities are. So actually, it might be that you only focus your efforts on two things or three things, but you do it across the board and you do it for everyone and you do it with meaning and you do it for the long term. And yes, there'll be, you know, initiatives that you put in place along the way and some of them will fail, you know, but it's just the first attempt in learning, isn't it, a failure? And you just, you, so those are small things you go back on, but largely your purpose, your values and all of your strategic attempts are going to be still right. It's just those tiny initiatives in place that are not. So those people that go around in circles, I just don't think that they have that top line stuff that they really, really need and that focus they really need at the top to be able to support those initiatives that keep going around in this loop and that don't necessarily embed in the way that they need them to. I like the way that you've framed this whole conversation. I think it's been a really interesting way of doing it. And the examples you've given, you may have noticed I was typing while you were talking there. I was absolutely still listening because I was trying to find a word and I was trying to find the word that's the antithesis of microaggressions and it's microaffirmations. It's those microaffirmations that collectively begin to turn the wheel in terms of culture. And I really like that the examples you've given are, are those micro-affirmations or micro-validations. It's a really interesting way of framing it. One last question before we unfortunately run out of time. I just wanted to ask, is it easier to work from scratch or from, quote, almost there in terms of the customer culture? Are the challenges different or is it still not to trivialize or oversimplify, but it's still just a case of ensuring that, that what we've spoken about is in place, regardless of where on that journey you're at. I guess I put a question back to you because your customer-centric culture is largely related to your workplace culture. So actually, if you were looking at a culture that was quite toxic and that was quite difficult and there was people were not aligned in terms of the business, that's very different to an organization that just isn't customer-orientated, but still could be a really good place to work. So if you're coming from a position where actually culture is great, but you want to be more customer centric and so, you know, then you're looking at maturity levels, then I would say that the biggest, most exciting challenge would be starting from scratch. So I mentioned it to you before, like you can show way more value in terms of putting quite simplistic things in and getting a massive result quicker than you can. I used to work with an organization that would get CSATs of 99. Where do I help you? It's really tough to stay at that level. So it's much, much easier and much more, I guess, satisfying in terms of an achievement to make, you know, to, to see that you've shown value and moved the needle. But that's coming from a workplace that is already in a good place and you're just weaving the customer in, right? If you've got a workplace has got a, you know, potentially toxic culture to start with, it's really, really tough. And that's why it's going to take an awful lot longer because you've got these trust elements and reputational elements and all of the benefits and all of that sort of stuff that you've got to take into consideration. So we don't come at it from that perspective. We very much come at it from how do we make this easier and, and more manageable from your customer's perspective so that you then don't have to spend all this money on initiatives because everyone just gets it. What a way to end our conversation. Everyone just gets it. I love that. 
It sounds so simple, but the journey and conversation we've been on to get to that line has been really, really interesting. I cannot thank you enough for joining me today, Leonie Williams. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Hopefully I'll speak to you again in the future. That's the pleasure to meet you. Thanks for everyone for listening. We will catch you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to Talk Time with Max Contact. We hope today's discussion has sparked new ideas to help you advance in your contact center. To learn more about any of the topics discussed in this episode, visit www.maxcontact.com. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating on your favorite streaming platform to help other like-minded individuals join the conversation. Also, stay tuned for our upcoming listener question segment. We'd love for you to participate and share your thoughts. And remember to hit the subscribe button and turn on notifications to never miss a future episode. On behalf of everyone at Max Contact, thanks for listening.